0: Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast. Today, I'm joined by someone whose work is absolutely wonderful and tells a a different type of story to the type of work that that we've covered in the past and the type of work that has been done on the region broadly. It's uh, it's really exciting to have Wendy Perlman on the show today. Wendy is Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Northwestern University and is the author of, of myriad books and articles and op-eds and, and highly regarded books that um, I'm sure many of you have come across. Perhaps most notably, We Crossed a Bridge and it trembled. The Voices from Syria, which has been commended and shortlisted for so many prizes. And Wendy, it's absolutely wonderful to have you here on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's it's a pleasure and it's really exciting to to get to talk to you today. Wendy, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the Middle East, please, and, and what really pulled you to the region?
1: Terrific. Well, what pulled me to the region um, primarily and firstly was a bit of... Uh, Happer stance uh, and not really even planning on uh, having any sort of career in Middle East studies. So like many American students, I did a college semester abroad in uh, studying elsewhere in the the world and chose to go to Morocco because I wanted to go to Africa. I had no uh, beginning in or no background in Middle East studies or the Arab world or Arabic, but went to North Africa and got hooked and have been doing it ever since.
0: Amazing. What was it that hooked you?
1: You know what, I... There was well one it was it was my first time outside the United States so right. I had a pretty sheltered life and hadn't traveled I grew up in the American Midwest so perhaps it was the most different and interesting place I had ever been and had I gone to somewhere else perhaps I would be studying China or Senegal or um, sure. or Costa Rica now um, but I lived with a local family I began studying Arabic I, I loved Arabic from the start the challenge right. uh, of it it was sort of a huge mountain that I wanted to climb and. Yeah conquer. I arrived during the month of Ramadan, so experienced that and, and all of the specialness it meant for for the community. Um, so it just uh, it just drew me in. And of course, I was also drawn by the politics. I went to Morocco in the mid-1990s. It was still the time of King Hassan II, a, a really cruel, brutal uh, king. It was the days of lead, as people often refer to those, those years of a, of a, of a system characterized by corruption and repression not allowing little space for political criticism or organizing and it was so it was also my my not only my first time in the Arab world it was my first experience in an authoritarian state and I was uh, captivated by what that meant and how it affected ordinary people's everyday experience of politics sure. and what it was like to be in a system that was fundamentally unfree
0: that That's fascinating, and it must have been quite the experience coming from from the the Midwest and this it's obviously this this incredibly democratic political system. What was it though that that really resonated for you about the sort of the prevailing sense of authoritarianism? Can you remember what it was that that really struck you?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you would have discussions with Moroccans about politics in that time, there was this sense, which I think really characterized so much of the Arab world until 2011, and, and then perhaps is coming back now, of a sense of futility. This, the idea that the system um, was not going to respond to the needs of citizens, and there was really nothing that citizens could do about it. That um, those who had power could abuse it however they wanted, and those who did not have power, who did not have connections, uh, did not have money, uh, weren't from prestigious families, uh, were had little choice but to be resigned to their lot, um, that that kind of pervasive, endemic corruption um, leading to a situation where, you know, those who didn't have power— uh, could only go so far in life. And this kind of stunted ambitions, the stunted sense of possibility, it was a political system and the imprint it left on people's everyday sense of who they could be and how far they could dream and whether or not they could achieve their dreams. I saw that, you know, as a very young person, in just a sort of sense of it, I got just just the most basic sense, because my my language capacity in Arabic was incredibly limited at the time. It was my first time, so I, I didn't explore very deeply. But even then, I could pick up a kind of feel in the air, a kind of um, public sort of Um, despondency due to uh, the lack of political freedoms and the lack of personal possibility, the lack of meritocracy, the, the lack of a space for people to achieve their aspirations that's what stuck with me about authoritarianism in the Arab world. And it continued with me. I later lived in Egypt for a year. I lived in the, in the Palestinian territories where there was a very different system of oppression, but still had the sense of limited political possibility leading to little limited personal possibility. Um, so I followed that over the years in my experiences in, in the Arab world. And I think that's why the Arab spring and the protests of 2011, um, uh, were so um, exhilarating for me as for so many people, um, because I knew the kind of system that those those protests wanted to upturn—not yeah. simply a political regime, but also to create almost a new kind of political air sure. in the Middle East. It's
0: it's fascinating to hear you say that. I mean, looking back on on your work, on your books, and the articles that you've done. I can I can see how that type of idea of political agency and and sort of personal freedoms kind of comes out in your work across like you say across the, the different contexts that you're you're looking at. but it's it's quite clear to me that 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 is in your work. So it's interesting to know that it it has its roots in your very formative uh, sort of stages of your of your intellectual career.
1: Yeah. It's true. And, and in fact, perhaps I haven't even articulated and realized it as such until, until now. But from my very first experience as a, a university student in 1995 in Morocco, that was what struck me about, about Middle East politics.
0: Right. It's really, really interesting. So, so you did your, your time in, in Morocco, and then, then you went back to the States and did some graduate study.
1: Yeah, I mean, I went back and forth to, um, from the States and, and Morocco for most of the, the late 1990s. I, I returned to my university and wrote a, a senior honors thesis on a colonial war between Spain and Morocco. The... 1920s, Riff War in the Rif Mountains. Um, then I returned after I finished college um, to go to Spain where I had a Fulbright grant to research the situation of Moroccan immigrants in Spain. Uh, I returned to Morocco several times continuing to do Arabic study and then began graduate school in, in the U.S. And although my focus was really primarily on North Africa throughout those years, again, because of the kind of chance of where I had wound up, once I began doing um, graduate work in Middle East politics, it seemed like eventually all roads in Middle East politics lead to, to Israel and the Palestinians. So when I had a chance to uh, go elsewhere, want to go eastward and see more of the region, felt like that would be a sensible place to go. So in the year 2000, um, it was a break between a uh, master's degree and uh, and starting in my doctoral program, I had the chance to go to the West Bank. And I studied at Birzeit University for a semester. That's a major Palestinian university um, in the village of Birzeit outside Ramallah. And I studied there for a semester and also worked for a Palestinian human rights organization. And then I just kind of fell deep into the, the mud of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for about the next 10 years. Right. And ended up writing um, <laughs> writing a book of, of interviews with Palestinians that I did during the Second Intifada, and then writing my dissertation on Palestinian politics. And um, if if the kind of political um, struggle in Morocco was captivating at the time, the kind of political dynamics uh Lived by Palestinians, what an entire other level of intensity, um, and and it really grabbed me.
0: Yeah, it's it's easy to see how that would be the case. And obviously, you were there at a time where where things were getting quite heated, where the the Second Intifada was was st- sort of brewing, I guess, with with the political changes in Israel. So that must have been quite a, a, a difficult time to be there, personally and politically
1: yeah it was quite interesting so I actually arrived in January 2000 and was there from January to June 2000 so now we can see in retrospect that it's they were the waning days of the Oslo peace process yeah. um, so I could I could get a sense then of the kind of um, frustrations that people had of, with seven years of a negotiating process that was not leading to a Palestinian state um, c- certainly the the um, uh, the experiences on the Israeli side with the rise of suicide bombings and and other security concerns during the Oslo years. And on the Palestinian side with checkpoints and, and restrictions on freedom of movement, but fundamentally many people's optimism that Oslo would lead to a Palestinian state being unfulfilled. Um, so that was, that was the feel of the air. At the, at the same time, I didn't at all see a, a second intifada coming. But when it did, um, I was in Egypt at the time. I was studying Arabic for a year in Egypt from late summer 2000 to late summer 2001. Um, so was there when, when protests began and they became quickly quite violent. And the region sort of came up in, in went up into flames in many ways. So I was seeing a place where I had just had, a, you know, very peaceful, safe, um, uh, you know, tension brewing, but a uh, relatively, um, you know, calm experience then overcome by violence. And um, that was also, uh, you know, a, a sort of a turning point, for, for me and my relationship to studying Palestine. Um, and because I was in Egypt and I wanted to know what it felt like for Palestinians but that fight were, were really being bombarded by various types of, of repression from the Israeli army, um, wanting to know what it felt like for them, how they were enduring this violence and also how they were understanding this experience. Um, I After I had a semester of studies in Egypt, sort of took the first bus back, went back to the West Bank and also to Gaza, and did interviews with really sort of a range of of Palestinians of different walks of life, having had different experiences during those first three months of the Second Intifada. And then that those interviews, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with them, I just knew that I wanted to hear voices that I found missing in American media coverage, but really Western media coverage at the time, Um, and knowing I had the ability to, to go back and hear stories and fill in for myself what was missing in terms of wanting to understand people's experiences so those interviews then became my first book, uh, Occupied Voices, Stories of Everyday Life from the Second Intifada, which ended up coming out in 2003.
0: Which is a really fascinating read, and I think it, it does a great job of, of offsetting some of the, the prevailing narratives from that time, which were obviously from a particular sort of ideological standpoint. I think it's really important that that the, the contributions that the book makes in terms of of trying to challenge a lot of those narratives. From there then, Wendy, I mean, it seems to me that there are a couple of things that, that draw out, that come out of your, your career, a focus on, on non-violence, a focus on uh, and, and non-state actors, and obviously the, the focus on agency as well. So what is it about the, the non-violence and the non-state actors that, that piqued your interest?
1: Well, that's a, a great question. I mean, I... Uh, I, my, the second book, which is called Violence, Nonviolence, and the Palestinian National Movement, was, uh, for me, it began as an attempt to try to grapple with and understand the, the second intifada and i see that now and i said earlier that, that for me the second intifada was a was a turning point i think that there you know there are generations of, of people in the west who, who study palestine and, and each of them had their kind of formative key moment there's the the 1960s plo generation that came in to studying palestine through that political phenomena and then there's the first generation of intifada and I'm, i think i'm part of the, the second intifada wave although i had a bit of contact with palestine before that it was the second Intifada, which um, was for me, the, the how to grapple with and explain this event. So the story of how I came to the topic of nonviolence, having done this first book of interviews, Occupied Voices, as I mentioned, um, which was published after my first year of graduate school. And I had a brief sort of book tour for that. I mean, it was just a series of book talks at bookstores and so forth. And I found again and again, skeptical audiences that said things along the lines of, yes, we know Palestinians suffer, and yes, we know occupation is terrible, but the violence, but the suicide bombings. And this was especially, you know, in the years 2002, 2003, when when um, there was a sort of peak of suicide bombings inside Israel, and it dominated on television screens and so forth. Um, so people would say, yeah, we know the Palestinians suffer a lot, but how do you explain this violence? Why do Palestinians use violence? And I wanted to provide a compelling answer to that question. So at the time, I was doing my PhD in political science and thought, what research can I do? How can I pull upon the methods of social science? How can I best use the kind of privilege I have as someone who gets to dedicate four, five, six years of her life to doing research on politics? How can I provide the best answer to this question: Why do Palestinians use violence? Why is there no Palestinian Gandhi, and so forth? I always felt that those questions were deeply problematic, but lacked a really powerful, compelling uh, research-based answer to those questions. And that's why I decided to make the question, the, the topic of my my PhD, this question of of what explains uh, groups' use of violent or nonviolent protest strategies? Why do some groups use one form or another? Why does any movement use nonviolent strategies at some times rather than violent, and violent strategies at others? And what I ended up arguing in my PhD, which then became that second book, is that there are clearly many reasons why these are complex, complicated, you know, embedded phenomena. But one important factor, which I felt had not been adequately addressed, was the degree of a movement's own internal political cohesion and organizational unity. When I looked at Palestinian history, and as I do in the book, from the 19-teens until um, uh, the the 21st century, um, at those times when the Palestinian national movement was more internally cohesive in terms of more united around a clear leadership, a clear set of goals, a united um, public opinion, uh, they were more able to use nonviolent protest, because nonviolent protest requires coordination of mass numbers. It requires restraint and discipline because any one person taking up weapons can transform a nonviolent protest to a violent one. Mm-hmm. So a group needs to have a basic level of internal unity in order to use nonviolent protest. At the same time, the more a group is internally fragmented, the more that factions will use violence as a way of competing against each other and this sort of ratcheting up, rallying around the flag and and claiming greater nationalism. Um, There's no capacity of a leadership to put bounds on when and how and against whom violence is used. So the more a group is fragmented or a national movement is fragmented, the more likely it is to use violence in an increasingly escalatory way. So that's the basic argument that tries to be generalizable for all national movements and movements of self-determination, but examines that in, in the case of something like 80 years of Palestinian history, showing that when Palestinians were more internally divided, there was more likely to be violence and escalatory violence, and those times when Palestinians did use nonviolent protest on a mass scale, that they had internal unity that enabled that kind of protest.
0: And it's it's absolutely fascinating hearing you you talk about that, and I, I think that it's it's a really compelling argument. It also, I think, explains the interest that you have in the sort of the non-state actors and trying to piece this this. This puzzle together, I guess, trying to put all the pieces of the jigsaw in in place to understand why why certain events are are populated by by certain types of actions, but I think moving moving beyond Palestine, Wendy. Um, it, obviously, more recently, you've been focusing a great deal more on on Syria, and mm-hmm. and the post Arab Spring, the post Arab uprisings experience, and. Uh, was was this interest just a, a consequence of your long standing concern or, or interest, intellectual curiosity, if you will, with authoritarian regimes and how people express agency within them?
1: Yeah, for, for sure, it was it was connected to that, and then more academically, um, the research that I had done on. on Um, the Palestinian national movement over the years had given me a lot of foundation on social movement theory and the study of social movements. I teach undergraduate classes on social movements. So academically was quite embedded in those questions too, about how do people mobilize, um, And then what sorts of forms do their mobilization take? And what are the strategic and organizational, but also the personal and emotional dimensions of this process of of participating in mass-based challenges to authority? Um, In addition, I can say that, that the second book on Palestine that I was just describing was just going to press when the when the Arab Spring began. So I remember my you know my, my manuscript was due right around the days um, when when Egyptians were were gathering in, in Tahrir Square. So at that point, I've been working on Palestinian politics for a, p- a pretty solid 10 years. And I just, was just publishing my second book and was really eager for something new. Yeah. I needed a I needed I needed a change of pace. I needed to get involved in a new case. I I, I was eager to to switch gears a bit. Um, so the, the Arab Spring for me came at exactly the right time, and and Syria grabbed me. I'm all, all countries that were were, were rising up in, in uprisings were, were, and they continue to be fascinating in their own rights. But I remember at the time when many Syrians themselves and outside observers kept saying, that you know, Syria is a kingdom of silence. Other countries might rise up, but Syrians have been so intimidated by a history of state violence. The regime is so strong. The military is so Infused with the regime, that all other countries might, might rise up, but not Syrians. So when Syrians really defied those expectations and also went out into the streets, I was really driven to try to understand why and what it felt like and what it was, how it was changing them, and um, this both from my longstanding interest in agency and and authoritarianism and protest. But also a more academic grounding in social movement theory that would not predict a movement in a country of this sort, where there was such a weak civil society, there weren't the pre existing organizational means for society to rise up, where the degree of fear and, and oppression was so strong, um, that it was also puzzling to try to explain how and why did Syrians break this barrier of fear to go out and make protest happen and launch a national revolt and spread it over space and sustain it over time. So both personally and politically as someone who cares about the region and intellectually as somebody who studied processes of mobilization, Syria was a, an absolutely captivating case. So I began studying Syria and made my first trip um, to the region to, to interview displaced Syrians in 2012. By that point, it already felt, at least for me to be too, too dangerous to go inside Syria and have sort of frank conversations with people about politics and sure. protest. And Syrians were already fleeing the country that I decided to, to interview um, displaced Syrians about their experiences of protest. And I began that in 2012 and have basically been doing it ever since. And I've at this point interviewed hundreds of Syrian refugees across the Middle East and also in Europe.
0: And you've done some incredible things with that. Um, before we get on to, to that, if I may, can you just say a little bit, Wendy, about your, your understanding of, of agency? It's something that I've been talking a great deal about with my uh, PhD students recently, and I think it'd be quite interesting just to hear just a, a few brief remarks about your understanding of agency within these quite powerful and dominant authoritarian structures.
1: Oh, that's also a great question. I mean, and the truth is, I, I rarely use the word agency per per se. So you might be better versed in it, and your students might be better versed in it than I am. Um, but what I'm interested in fundamentally is for for people to find within themselves the capacity to act. And. It may be also coming from the perspective of social movement theory, I often think about it in terms of, of risk. In high risk environments, how do people muster the courage um, and their own capacity and the resources and will to face and uh, assume high risks um, in order to attempt to control their own fate and an attempt to? Co- to make political change. So agency, I, I think, means lots of different things in different settings. But sure. from a the perspective of, of political protest, I'm interested in, in how it is that people, especially in contexts where people previously did not exercise such kind of engagement or risk or um, or action, and even in settings where people never imagined doing it, how do they, come to act in newly bold and and also risk assuming ways because it's not just i mean in many settings the question is of agency is is people acting against apathy in the settings that we're talking about it's it's assuming tremendous risk about people being willing feeling like they're ultimately willing to 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 die for their political beliefs for um, making a contribution to political change, not even knowing if they'll achieve political change or not, or even if their their actions will have any impact, but feeling compelled to do something. And what fascinates me is what is the switch that happens or the process that people undergo to go from a situation in which they perhaps never imagined taking such political acts to be willing to risk their lives. To carry out that kind yeah. of action,
0: and it, it's it's fascinating and an incredible process that that someone must must go through to get to that point. And I yeah. guess that um, that your your next book, We Crossed the Bridge and It Trembled, goes some way into to understanding that, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's one of many themes that I hope come out into, into the that book. So as I said, when I began in 2012 doing interviews with displaced Syrians, my interest really was how did Syrians break the barrier of fear, and how did individuals come to participate in protest? How did communities come to organize protest and coordinate and make mass protest happen? And as I started doing these interviews and continued, I collected stories that were not only about that moment of protest, but about all sorts of aspects of Syrians' lives. People talked about the authoritarian status quo before 2011, as protests escalated into rebellion and war. Uh, People talked about their experiences of enduring horrific types of violence. And then ultimately people also talked about their experiences, displaced persons, and what it was like to become a refugee. So there were many different roads I could have taken in trying to transform all of this interview material into a book. And ultimately what I decided to do in writing We Crossed a Bridge was to uh, write a book that is a kind of collection and curation of excerpts of the testimonials that I collected. So it's something of an oral history in that if you open up the book, it's structured name, story, name, story, story. the introduction is in my voice, and the rest is exclusively these kinds of excerpts from the voices of Syrians themselves that I recorded. And my job was to um, call these excerpts and then put them in a kind of a sequence that I hoped would walk a reader through the story of Syria via this mosaic of voices. So it's it's organized in beginning with stories and anecdotes and memories and reflections about... What life was like in the regime established by Hafez al-Assad in 1970, then how life changed when Bashar came to power in the year 2000, how the uprising began in 2011, how it uh, spread, how it escalated, experiences of civilians living war, and then and then ultimately people's experiences becoming refugees and their reflections on this entire kind of arc and journey that they've lived. So it's a, it's a book of testimonials. Um, in, rather than a book of of a uh, of, of theory in which my voice is at the forefront, um, uh, offering analysis and interpretation, and presenting and using these voices as data to make a, a different sort of argument.
0: And I think from from having listened to you just speaking over the past 20, 25 minutes, it's mm. it's fascinating to to try and understand why you why you did that and the way in which you you reached the point of doing that and it's I mean it's such a powerful book and and the the rewards nominations commendations are all incredibly well deserved and and anyone who's not read it really must because I think it does such a good job of, of doing everything that you, you sort of set out to do and that, that we've talked about over the, the duration of this recording, of, of trying to understand agency, of trying to understand how people can operate in the face of all these structures, but doing it in such a way that, that isn't you sort of taking over and speaking for people. It's, it's allowing people that or creating the space for people to speak for themselves, and that's what makes it such a powerful, uh, powerful work.
1: Thank you so much. I mean, um in, in collecting these stories, um, it's simply that the Syrians with whom I spoke, their stories were so powerful. And it wasn't just their stories that were powerful, it was their own ways of expressing themselves. Yeah. That people did so with with intelligence and with beauty and with poetics and with feeling. And you know, I think. As a social scientist I think there are times when when social science theory and methodology can extract understanding from material in a way that that aids and helps us to learn more than we might learn from the material we gather itself. But in this situation, I thought the best thing I could do was to present it to readers and try to step out of the way. Because Syrians were providing their own analysis. They were providing their own interpretations. They weren't just describing what happened, but they were making sense for themselves of why it happened and why it mattered. And the the best thing I could do in the service not only of trying to do right by the people I talk to, but also in the service of trying to produce a book that I hoped would help um, non-Syrians understand Syria, was to um, to present the material um, itself in a in a less in an unfiltered, more raw way. Um, So people could engage with these these voices. And I felt so lucky myself to have had the opportunity to travel in different places, to to sit down with so many different Syrian citizens of different walks of life and have conversations with them that I wanted to write a book that would capture something of that, of those conversations. For other people who haven't had the chance to sit down with Syrian refugees in different countries, the book is kind of like saying... If you have the chance, these are the kinds of things you would hear. So yeah. just sit back and listen.
0: Amazing. Wendy, we've taken up so much of your time, and I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. But I wonder if I can ask just one very quick question. Sure. And that is at what point did you did you decide or realize that that this was the way that the book was going that you were going to you were going to purely have it as a series of of testimonials or a testimony. Sorry. What point in the process did you, you decide that was that was your approach.
1: I have to say it was very late in the game. And I almost wrote probably three-fourths of a book manuscript in an entirely different um, style. And it was, so it was, it, was, it was late in the process. Um, and it was also um, thanks to critical readers who read what I was writing and said, the best part of this are, the, are your quotations from your interlocutors, not you and get yeah. out of the way. And right. of course, once I, I heard that, I, I knew they were 100% right. And I think in some ways it was, I was slow to shed the kind of academic apparatus that views interviews as data to analyze, that has so much emphasis on our own academic voices, that we provide interpretation, analysis, and meaning, um, and that interviews are not, not comprehensible unless we comprehend them. Yeah. Perhaps I had so internalized yeah. that sort of a, an approach that it took outside readers a chance to sort of, you know, shake me into reality and have the wake-up call of um, your best role is to curate, but otherwise get out of the way. Yeah. And they were 100% right.
0: Amazing. Well, well kudos to you for for feeling comfortable enough and and willing enough to to get out of the way i know a number of people would really struggle to do that and and i think it's it's incredible that that you did but i guess it's it's also a reflection of of everything that we've been speaking about and your commitment to to, to trying to tell the story of, of people and their, their struggle against authoritarianism. But, Wendy, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, I mean, there's so much more that, that we've not even touched on. So maybe we'll have to get you back on and do a part two sometime.
1: It would be my pleasure. Thank you so, so much oh, for wonderful. having
0: me. Thanks, Wendy. Until the next time, thank you so much.
1: Sure.